welcome back to Sextras. Where we talk about sex and all the extras. I'm Honey. And I'm Maria. Do you want to say your name? Oh, I'm Kabir. <laughs> <laughs> and today, clearly, we're going to be talking to Kabir. <laughs> Our um, first guest in the studio. Yeah, so exciting. You know it is. Yeah, today we're going to talk about BPD and queerness. <laughs> so what it's like to be a mentally ill fag and have sex. <laughs> yeah. Can you yeah. say that? You can say whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we're super excited. I met you. Well, I I don't know if you guys have ever met before, but I met Kabir when we were like fifteen, fifteen probably, and it was so straight. I remember just like (laughs) Hannah and Amy, our friends. Summoning me to go and meet you, <laughs> they were like, "Oh, you're going to meet Kabir today," and I was like, "Oh, am I? Okay." God, did I need like a forewarning? No, I think like it was literally an hour before. Like, okay, you're going. You're going. This is this the is location. What you're doing today? God, yeah. <laughs> that makes me sound so scary. Yeah, it was scary. I was like, I don't know who this person is. It sounds like a fucking drug cartel, and it's like when you finally make it through the final round. No, exactly. Round, you will be meeting Kabir today. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me feel like a mob boss. I love that. I grew up on mafia films. That just fulfills my fantasy. So much power. For that. But then I got there, and I was like, okay, I feel like this isn't as scary as it was made this out piece to of be. Shit. <laughs> I was like, why the fuck am I here? <laughs> Uh, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, so and then we've only seen each other like a handful, a handful of times of time since then. But we, I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to, to catch, catch up. up. <laughs> so yeah, we didn't do a segment for this episode, but we're just gonna get into it. We have a lot to say, so cool. Yeah, so should we start by just talking a bit about BPD? That was gonna yeah. be the main theme, but now we have so many things that we want to talk about. <laughs> so we heard you on Back from the Borderline, which yeah. is why we wanted to have you on. So go yeah. check that out as well. It's a really good podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about your experience, experience with, BPD. with BPD, how it manifests itself? Yeah. So BPD, borderline personality disorder. Essentially, how I view it now is a pattern of frameworks and just routines that I developed as a child in order to survive, which now don't really work nowadays. But it's a lot more complicated than that because it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, varying from person to person. But according to the DSM-5, which is like the Diagnostics Manual for Mental Health, they have nine different criteria. And if you meet, I think, at least five of them, then you can be diagnosed with BPD. So that can manifest itself as... And what it most typically manifests itself in is attachment issues and abandonment issues, mm. um, impulsive and reckless behavior, whether that comes to how you have sex, how you spend, how you kind of live your entire life. It, it's a very extreme, unstable emotion. It's a lot of different things. So it manifests itself in a lot of different ways with a lot of different symptoms. And it's typically developed from early onset childhood trauma or stuff like that, where either neglect, abuse, trauma, but it can be in a variety of different ways it's not necessarily just in the whole like i had a really shit upbringing because the way in which we react and respond especially as children to even menial or smaller things can have such a big impact so i think it really can come out of nowhere and really mm. spring up on people out of nowhere and i was born a very sensitive child anyway so i think i was definitely like primed to be mentally ill <laughs> and it just happened to be borderline personality disorder but um yeah kind of affect me but that's how I would describe it okay so and does it kind of change depending on like 
who you're with, day to day. Massively. So it, it can change in like five seconds. Like I would say, I mean, not to compare mental illnesses, but I would definitely be like, BPD is a lot like how people would view bipolar disorder, except instead of having like manic states and up and down states that can last um days, it's like that, but within the space of five minutes. Mm, so okay. it really affects how you have relationships and it can really affect who you're with and how and how it manifests is really depending on, on the surroundings that you're in. So a lot of the time people with BPD suffer from having a shifting sense of identity, mm. which means that a lot of the time what they enjoy, their opinions, their basic sense of self can be very, very fickle and malleable. And that means, fine, on the bright side, they can be really adaptive, but it means a lot of the time when they're trying to win the affections of someone, you very much find yourself changing and almost mirroring that person a lot of the time, mm. whether it's interest, music taste, the way in which you dress, the way in which you communicate. Because BPD fundamentally is an illness or a personality disorder that depends on your relationships both with other people and with yourself it's a lot less i mean it's a lot of what's going on in here but it's a lot less just what's going on in here and a lot more about how i communicate and interact with the world around me that mm. affects my mental illness what like differentiates just like a normal person because like a lot of things we were kind of talking a bit before like the this whole tiktok mania of like everyone's fucking diagnosing yeah. themselves with everything and like what's different from like someone that's just like quite impulsive or like a lot of the things that you described i know you said you have to have at least five of the criteria but like as someone that actually has bpd like how would you say it sort of differs how it differs from just a normal not normal yeah (laughs) i know what you mean from from like um a non-bpd person i think it's more like the intensity and the extremes to which they can occur so it's the kind of levels of sadness or the levels of happiness over the most menial things. Like someone can look at me the wrong way mm. and that can throw my day off. Or I can get a text from the right person and I will be like, like I will be acting like I just fucking won the Olympics mm. kind of thing. <laughs> and it's that level of extremes. It's very yeah. black and white thinking. It's, it's very much like a pendulum swing from one end to the other. And I think it's the speed and intensity at which they happen, which is okay. so characteristic of BPD. And it's also like, you can be impulsive and stuff like that, but it's actively putting yourself, impulsivity to the point where it's reckless and very, very harmful. Mm. And a lot of the time it's fine to escape a feeling. A lot of the time it's just because I feel like doing something. But yeah, I think the way in which it differentiates from your average kind of neurotypical person is just the intensity and that lack of stability with it all. Okay. But yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, like, how have you found that it sort of shows itself in, like, dating and relationships specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things, especially when it comes to sex, is that for so long I was using sex as a form of self-harm. So, and I think a lot of people do it anyways. But um, when you have BPD, you are really prone to finding ways to harm yourself. And I think, especially at points where I was going through really depressive periods where I was just getting fucked up, like, I would sleep with just about anyone because I needed, A, that kind of validation for myself Mm. but be also like you know it's something you're gonna regret you know it's fucking you up so i would throw myself out there and put myself in risky stupid dangerous situations especially with having an app like grinder making sex so accessible and so easy to have it was really easy to put myself in vulnerable tricky positions but also on the flip side when it comes to more like dating and stuff like that it's really easy 
to get incredibly infatuated with someone really mm. easily. It's really incredible. It's really easy to become obsessive, to become to favorite person someone. Mm. But on the flip side, that's the negative. I think people with BPD because you spend so long trying to learn how to please other people and seek that validation. I've never met a person with BPD who's bad in bed, which is <laughs> the best part. Love that. Um, no, but uh, because I think you spend so much time trying to figure out how to give pleasure because that's how you find validation in yourself because you mm. are essentially seeking approval. You just figure out how to be good at giving up, getting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, giving and getting. Yeah. Um, and then, but also it means that people with BPD, when, when they're living healthily, can love incredibly hard. It means they can, their sense of loyalty, the sense of connection you can build with someone with BPD is unlike any other, I would say, because mm. there is a huge amount of compassion, empathy, love and loyalty, and it is to such an extreme level that as long as it's healthy and as long as it's rate kept to a healthy level, it can be some of the most, like the relationships I have with people are some of the most beautiful things in my life. And yeah. I largely credit the fact that my brain's a bit more enthusiastic with my emotions <laughs> with for a lot of that so yeah mm. but does i mean you talked about how it can change like your emotions can change from one yeah. extreme to the other how does that affect, affect relationships okay so that so basically there's this thing called splitting which is the idea that like it's something like black and white thinking mm. and when you split on a person you kind of switch between ide like idealizing them and massively demonizing them mm. it can like switch over the smallest of things so like for example one of my friends a couple of weeks ago i was meant to see them and she like didn't hit me back we made plans and immediately just because i don't get that text i'm like fuck this bitch and i'm not even like genuinely angry with her it's like how dare she fucking disrespect me the second she was like yeah sorry i was just really tired and passed out i was like oh it's okay babe like it's fine <laughs> but it's that kind of extreme switch from you're the best person ever i idealize you to such an unhealthy extent to you are now literally satan mm. that makes it really hard to to manage a lot of the time with relationships and i don't want to overly stigmatize but like every person with bpd is like that because i'm talking at a very baseline level and you do learn how to manage your things you do you know through therapy just through age and learning how to deal with your symptoms you become a lot better at identifying your own emotional chaos and being like i'm not gonna let this actually affect me in my real life mm. but you know we're talking about completely untreated why going running rampant bpd yeah it's you can it really affects relationships because it can make you paranoid it can make you nervous it can make you the most loving person but it can also make you switch up on a person so incredibly quickly and i think loving someone with bpd requires a lot of patience a lot of compassion and a lot of reassurance more than anything i think people with bpd more often than not just need that little bit of reassurance mm. but yeah it sounds like I don't know, because when you're younger as well, obviously, with regardless of whether you have PPD or any kind of like mental or personality um, disorder or illness, whatever you want to call it, the feelings that you have are already so intense. And also, you know, so little about dating. You don't know how to put words to things like things like attachment theory. If I had known that when I was 16, that literally would have saved my life. But you don't know how to understand why other people are acting certain way so i think like mm. i mean especially being queer as well like on top of it all you've yeah. got the, the it becomes a little bit of a clusterfuck it's really yeah. fun <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i can imagine it's like even just from like a, someone else's trying to understand your point of view and then you trying to 
mirror the other person is like a whole complex it's very complicated Mm. i think so this is why they don't you can't get diagnosed with a personality disorder before the age of 18 because they're like so many of the symptoms of having bpd all personality disorders just like impulsivity reckless behavior shifting sense of identity all of those are kind of just like isn't that also puberty babes yeah. like, um, <laughs> so that's why they can only diagnose you after you're 18 mm. which in some at least in the uk i'm not really sure about how it is elsewhere but and in some regards that's great because obviously we don't want to go around giving labels to every 15 year old who thinks they're slightly off kelp at tiktok but um <laughs> yeah at the same time had i had my diagnosis years in advance it would have made it a lot more easier because i could have got the right therapy i could have learned how to manage mm. those skills a lot earlier than I have. Yeah. And now it feels like, A, especially being queer, but B, having to deal with BPD, which affects how I interact with people. But see, also just having a mental illness, which means that you, ha- you suffer from depression, anxiety, blah, blah, blah. You enter your 20s or your like, late teens and you're like, I'm now playing emotional catch-up. I'm playing mm. relational catch-up because mm. I've not had time to focus on what my interests are sexually, what I enjoy what I'm looking for in a person because I've been too busy just trying to A, stay alive and B, seek that kind of validation from other people and seek that, not validation, but it's, you don't want to be abandoned. It's the most ridiculous fear of abandonment. You know, know, for example, when you come back from like a date and it's like, oh my God, I hope they like me. So often, more often than not, I kind of forget to ask myself, but did I, did I like them? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that. I think you're so hyper-focused on did I like, do they like me? You forget to ask yourself the questions of, do I like them? What do I like? What's important to me? Because you're so afraid mm. of losing any potential thing that can come into your life that A, it makes it a lot more difficult to communicate on a very open level. B, become terrified of pushing that person away, scaring them. I feel like I'm really giving people BPD a bad rap. Like, they can be great. <laughs> at, at least from like a, the mental processes behind it, yeah, that's what happens. And I think for a lot of people, that's a very relatable experience yeah Mm. yeah but i think that's why like things like diagnosis when you have an explanation and like you can like see it something that you're doing and you're like oh no this is just a symptom like exactly it's Mm. not and then you can as you said choose to not act on it or like choose to not well knowledge is power exactly i think that's the biggest thing with bpd so i understand why they don't diagnose you before you're 18 but at the same time had i been able to be like this is what's going on with me. Mm. This is, I can identify, this isn't necessarily who I am, but it's an emotion that I'm yeah. having. And being able to be like, okay, well, I know this isn't rational. I know why this isn't rational. I know how to now make sense of that. Mm. I know where this pain or this emotion is coming from. Now I can deal with it and handle it maturely. Yeah. So now when I catch myself obsessing over someone or something, it's a lot easier for me to pull myself out of it and be like, hey, this is fucked up. Like, this is, yeah. this is irrational, this isn't good for me, I know why I'm doing this, it's because I'm repeating unhealthy patterns from my past, mm. and as much as it yeah. feels like I should do this, because it's all I've ever been trained to do, by doing a different action, I'm retraining myself, making my relationships better with other people, and I'm making my own mental health better. Mm. Yeah. But it, it's tricky, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like providing the guidelines for how to, yeah. like, therapize yourself in a weird way (laughs) if you don't mind can you tell us a bit about like an example of a relationship and how that's happened and how you've i don't know if you've yeah how how, how, how it's affected yeah yeah. i think the best example to give then is probably 
it wasn't even a relationship, but it's the first time I've ever had strong feelings for someone. I was mm. like 13 and I really fell for one of my close friends who was also gay. And it was like, it lasted about like two and a half years and it was the most intense, obsessive infatuation where I was like, I'm completely in love, but it so much, it became so much of my identity to the point that I found myself bringing it up in every conversation. I was like, I could, you know that bit in Mean Girls when Katie is like, I couldn't stop myself from talking about Regina. It was like word vomit. Mm. It was like that but in every <laughs> single conversation. And it was like, whenever we'd get into a fight, if they would like block me for the day, I would probably send them like a hundred messages, be like, they're freaking out, crying, hyperventilating. I like this kid so much that if people made jokes about it, I would just, especially because I was 13, puberty, kind of just off a really shitty period of my family at that time. There was a lot going on in my emotional world that to attach to something and find someone that I could latch onto mm. was the best thing ever. And it was mm. someone who really cared about me, who emotionally I know had also fallen for me to an extent, but it was like insane. And like, I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. It was the most all-encompassing toxic thing because it just took over my entire life and it meant that I made myself overly vulnerable I didn't respect myself and I'd put myself in situation I think that's one of the biggest things with BPD and relationships is learning boundaries and self-respect mm. because it becomes really hard to put those boundaries in place but a lot of the time when you're looking for love or you're looking for affection you're willing to let a lot of shit slide because you don't want to lose that person mm. and you don't want to scare them off or set up boundaries which is like hey no this is inappropriate and i think learning to realize that in those moments i'm disrespecting myself even if it doesn't feel like i am because i so desperately want something that's been the biggest way in which like relationships for me now have changed because now i'm able to be like okay this is a step too far no matter how much i may want that person or i want them in my life i recognize that this is me disrespecting myself this is me disrespecting the boundaries i know that i'm worth more than this but back then it was the exact opposite it was I would cancel holidays so I could see this person. Oh, I would wow. be obsessed and they would cancel on me and I'd go fucking insane. Mm. It would, but I would bend over backwards. I would do anything. I mean, and I, that was never reciprocated, but the feeling was so much. And then when I got told they didn't like me back or when I knew that it wasn't going to work out, it was like a bullet to the chest. Like it was the most, like it felt like a death. Kind of thing, because so much of what I built myself up around and so much of my current identity at the time, which was just an obsession with this person, mm. had completely been torn away from me. Yeah. And so I felt aimless and I'm trying to get over that person. It wasn't so much I'm just trying to get over them. It was I've forgotten who the fuck I am mm. because my entire life, every waking moment, thought, conversation has either been I'm really depressed because I was dealing with mental health issues or I'm in love with this person. Mm. Yeah. And two whole years of doing that you kind of hit i hit 15 and i was just like 16 or whatever and i was just like whoa <laughs> slow the fuck down <laughs> but yeah i think it's definitely impacted relationships in that sense that it, it can make it very easy to find myself a disrespecting my own boundaries but be infatuated with someone so do you think your diagnosis is what made that switch between realizing that that was completely unhealthy and or do you think it was just like a process of time i mean i guess it could be i mean i think it's both because i think one i've grown up a lot mm-hmm. like it's been nine years since that <laughs> one instance but that, that doesn't change the fact that i still very rarely now but like very occasionally i'll be like i find myself obsessing over a guy um but the now having the diagnosis and having you know 
the power of that knowledge of understanding I'm repeating abandonment issues from my past mm. of understanding this isn't rational this isn't some intense beautiful love this is you just being a bit like you know off your rocker um, <laughs> yeah like you're not in love with them you're exactly. just mentally ill no completely <laughs> ill it's like it's, it's like oh, more often than I'm not in love with you I'm in love with the idea of you that yeah. I've placed in my head and this idea of you is one that is ultimately fueled by not narcissism but none of what I'm obsessed with right now has anything to do with that other person yeah, it's yeah. more about I find it so difficult to love myself at this point. Mm. So how can I love myself through aggressively projecting that onto another person? Yeah. And I think having, just having the knowledge of that makes it so much easier for me to be like, okay, well, that's all bullshit. Let me center it back on myself. Let me have those conversations with myself to self-soothe myself, at least Mm -hmm. make the situation Mm. easier and more manageable. But at the same time, I think knowing that I can get so obsessive means that like since that one boy which was nine years ago i think i probably liked genuinely like had a crush on or liked two or three boys since then in the last nine years oh, wow. i find it so i can date i can do that oh, i have all of i have a lot of fun doing that but liking someone to the point where i'm like i think i've somewhat closed myself off Mm. yeah i mean it sounds like it takes a lot of energy to like i don't it's think I, even three times sounds like a lot for that kind of yeah, intensity intense. and like <laughs> only one of them was like an actual relationship and that was like the only boyfriend i've ever had and looking back it was like we were only together for like three or four months and mm. i got broken up with the day before my a-level started which was <gasps> so fucking That's inappropriate so not okay no he, he was year below so I think we can give him a pass there and oh, I so would, he didn't understand I, he didn't understand like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> but no but I wouldn't have got the grades I did if it weren't for that breakup so thank you for breaking up with me before my started. but um I kind of looked back on it like eight months later and I was and I was just a bit like I didn't know you like mm. it was very much like training wheels relationship like training mm. wheels boyfriend but it was just like I found you really really hot and that was enough for my infatuation to start going off because I was like, I didn't really get to know you. I didn't really get to know your friend. What I was obsessed with was this image of you, which was someone who I found really, really attractive. Mm. I kind of view, and I hate to admit this, but I look back and I'm like, in that relationship, I essentially just treated you like a Birkin bag. Like I treated you like a really, <laughs> like the hottest new little accessory that yeah. I could go about town being like, look at this, like, little, you know, and kind of being able to project whatever parts of my own personality I wanted to on this person because I didn't know them well enough at that point. And Mm. it was just the excitement of someone cares about me. Someone's there for me. And it's someone that I find really, really hot. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of, it's interesting because every relationship I have now, every interaction, romantic, sexual, friendship, all of them are kind of, you learn from the other. Yeah. our, Our brains work by referencing old data, by referencing our past and building up expectations of the future based mm. on what we've gone through. So learning and having the awareness of the diagnosis allows me to get to a point where I'm creating new data for myself to learn of. So, mm. in, so by having those conversations around like, this is unhealthy, this and that, even if they're one-off instances, I'm creating new examples for my brain to then refer to, mm. which means that in future going forward, I can treat myself better and therefore treat the other person I'm in a relationship with a lot better too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So other than being diagnosed and learning more about it and like how you experience BPD, what else like have you learnt to sort of help you in In those very intense intense moments? Yeah. Mm. I think kind of the most important thing is having a good support network Mm. and just having 
I, actually, no, between me, forget about that, between me and the other person, the most important thing I can have is open and honest communication. And I think that is so much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think we, we all talk about how like, communication is key, and you're like, guys, just talk about it. But it's like, in the heat of it, in the heat of those emotions, in the heat of the kind of fear of abandonment, it's really hard to say, hey, no, these are my needs. Mm, yeah. And this is how I'm feeling. To have a successful and very loving relationship with someone with BPD, all that's required is a little bit extra communication and being willing to take those steps of, hey, I'm just checking in, or what's going on in your mind, or hey, I can tell something's up. But from my end, it's also about being a lot more like, this is making me uncomfortable. I actually, this did upset me. Mm-hmm. Which is something that I think I find very hard to do because it's very easy for me to be like, oh, don't worry about it, babes. It's mm-hmm. fine. Because once the situation is resolved, my emotional, like, because my emotions change so much, it's very, when I'm like really angry and sad in the moment, but the second it's over, I'm like, fine. And a lot of the time it's difficult for me to be like, actually, no, this did upset me because mm-hmm. I'm feeling fine now. And nothing ever really feels permanent because when you have BPD, you have this thing called a lack of emotional permanence, which means that you can literally, like I've said, switch from one emotion to the other. But it's almost as if like the previous emotion never happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think in that respect, it becomes really difficult. But also because of that perceived fear of abandonment, it becomes really hard to be like, treat me differently. Yeah. And so I think a lot of it is about learning to have those conversations. And learning how to communicate, even when it's really difficult, even if you don't want to. Because more often than not, the stuff that I'm really struggling to say and get out is met with such a kind, understanding response of, hey, I get it, that makes sense. And B, when it's not met with that kind of response, is that person worth my time anyway? Mm. Like, no. So, I forgot what the question was, but there's there's my answer. (laughs) There we go. So, you know how you were saying that bpd affects like your identity because you kind of like mold it a little bit so like how did that interact with your queerness and like when you were kind of just finding out about it well not finding out about it but you (laughs) know what like being queer that's what i mean (laughs) i think well the thing is is that you get a lot of people people who do have bpd tend to engage in not more promiscuous sex than they do, but that's what it's to queerness. They are more likely to be queer or have queer relationships. And I think that's just because they are more impulsive and therefore more willing to try stuff. But for me, and also I think the queer community has a lot of trauma in it. So there's no surprise that people mm. who are more likely to be traumatized are more likely to have mental illnesses that are the direct result of trauma. But um, I think for me, it was quite lucky in the way that they didn't really interact so i've been like dealing with mental health issues since i was about like 10 which was when i first had my like first serious bout of like what i would call like depression Mm -hmm. but at the same time i've kind of always known that i was into boys like i always say i came out my mum's vagina and i said i'm never going back on one of those again (laughs) Um, but at the same time like i think because of that lack of a sense of identity when i did come out i latched on to the only kind of representation of queerness i'd ever really seen which was being the bitchy gay the Mm. regina george-esque gay the very kind of and because i didn't really know where i fell in that space between masculine and feminine and because i the kind of conversation wasn't around when i was 13 about masculinity and femininity and gender roles Mm. it was this really weird thing where because i'd come out so early especially at a time where you're finding out who you are. Yeah. I spent so much of my time playing up a stereotype or a character that I used 
almost as a defense mechanism and mm. almost as a way to protect myself. That and I think this is the case for a lot of queer people, regardless of mental yeah, illness or not. Yeah, I was going to say that. That they then spend their late teens and early twenties untangling who they actually are from, however they've had to present themselves, whether that's mm. in the closet, whether that's out in their early years. Yeah. So it's it's been an interesting intersection mm. of the two, and I think especially now being in more queer circles, being in more queer communities, you get so many different types of like gays if you know what i mean you get like soho gays or techno gays or like stoner gays and so i think the shifting sense of identity kind of really affects me now where it's like one minute i'm like i'm a techno gay and then like, and then like a week later i'm like i'm a stoner gay and you can see me like you can like go through my etsy or like even my like apple music library and you can see what i was like you can see like what identity i had chosen that week and like I've set, I've settled on like three or four. They're all pretty fun. <laughs> That's fun. But, like, <laughs> but like you can kind of see like oh Kabir's going through a new phase because she'll change up the like the outfit, she'll change up the clothing, she'll change up, the... and it's not intentional because I do kind of genuinely do fall in love with it. It's not like I'm faking anything, but it's like you kind of go so full force on these things <laughs> yeah. like every and then, and then next week you're like no I want to be something else now. <laughs> yeah. um, but now I think it's got to a point where I can pick up things that I really enjoy and I can take parts from the different identities I get to explore and I use that to form a more fully formed version of myself. And mm. I think that's only because, A, I've, as you grow up, you learn more about your mental health diagnosis, but B, it's because I've become a lot more comfortable in my queerness. And I would say that's been the biggest thing for both me helping find my own sense of identity, but also alleviating a lot of the symptoms of my BPD has been kind of coming to terms with becoming a lot more comfortable with my own queerness. Mm. Maybe your ident like part of it is just figuring out figuring out that your identity might be like I am just the kind of person that just likes to try out different things and like as you yeah. said take what I can from each and like there's not necessarily anything wrong with being like oh this week I'm like yeah, this exactly. kind of person it's like you're just a versatile person yeah. like in more ways than one. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, com- I mean com- completely like um. And so much of that has only been alleviated by coming to terms with mm. my queerness. So the best kind of analogy for that is gender. So I don't view, so I'm non-binary. Um, I go by he, they, but only out of kind of like ease and because it's just easier if I go mm. by he, they for 99% of the population, which really is a bad thing to do. Anyway, <laughs> anyway point aside, um, in the same way that I don't view masculinity or femininity as two specific things like they are constructs but i i just am i don't have i have too much shit going on to be like how do i fit in to this side of masculinity or Mm. how do i fit into this side of femininity i just am and wherever people want to place me along that line is where they choose to place me but Mm -hmm. some days i wake up and the way i dress the way i express myself is a lot more androgynous some days it's a lot more feminine some days it's a lot more masculine and that all, all of those are still me they're very different sides of me and they express themselves in very different ways, but they are still fundamentally all me. And so in a very similar way to that, as long as I'm still the same person, as long as my values, the way my moral compass is still the same, and my opinions and my principles stay the same, as far as I'm concerned, that shifting sense of identity Mm. has just become one of the most beautiful things because it's allowed me to learn more about myself and Mm. explore different facets of my personality, things that I enjoy. And yeah, there is an advantage to being to being willing to throw yourself so headfirst into something, because mm. I don't know as many people who, and I'm not not to toot my own horn, but like 
who I mean I would if I could. You but, should. But yeah. <laughs> but, um, I don't know as many people who would be as comfortable in such a different variety of circumstances with such a different variety of people as I may necessarily be. Not because I'm a different person or I completely change who I am, but because I've learned how to enjoy different parts of my identity while still mm. fundamentally staying grounded and remaining as myself. Mm. But that's something that I've only really learned through coming to terms with my queerness. And so one thing I've definitely learned, and like we were talking about this earlier when I was joking about gatekeeping queerness, is that <laughs> I was very comfortable... Um, like, I've been very comfortable with the fact that I liked men. I like the same sex. People with penises, I guess. Actually, not even people... You know, whatever. Anyway, it's called, labels are confusing. But anyway, I, I realised I wasn't heterosexual at 13. Uh, well, and I knew it for much longer. But that's when I came out. That's when I was comfortable with it. But that has nothing to do with my queerness. The way that I feel comfortable in my own body. The way I feel comfortable dressing, expressing myself, mm-hmm. speaking. That kind of... I think 13-year-old me wanted to be the most heteronormative gay man possible. Mm. And that has nothing to do with the fact that now I feel a lot more comfortable being very different. And queerness exists in relation to the fact that it is a separation from mm. cisgender mm-hmm. heteronormative society. Like, yeah. it can't fit into any one box. Yeah. And also, I mean, growing up in, like, the sphere that we grew up in as well, I can imagine that, I mean, I already know from just, like, us being bisexual, but the fact that like there aren't that many people who are open about their yeah their sexuality you you would kind of almost think because it is such a bubble Mm. that it would kind of be easier to be gay and i think fine the one good thing is is that because it was such a bubble i had to deal with very little homophobia Mm -hmm. because it was but because i was so attached to this regina george-esque type of personality because i went to an all-boys very alpha male-esque school I learned they can't scare me if I scare them first. So by being a massive mm-hmm. bitch, it meant that everyone knew they couldn't be homophobic. So in that regard, it was great. But again, when you're surrounded by such heteronormativity, that is what you kind of are surrounded by. It's what you aspire to. It's what feels like the norm. It feels like that's what you want. Yeah. And I think especially in these, in because the spheres that we're in are you know, are in direct relation to having a certain amount of financial privileges and being in a certain part meant that it was, it felt really hard to break away from it. Yeah. And it felt mm. really hard to kind of being willing to explore outside of that bubble of heteronormativity, mm. especially not being your typical skinny white boy. And the thing is, if you're skinny, if I was a skinny white boy when I was 15, I probably would have been like, like a lot of my friends who were like on Grinder from a really young age, kind of putting themselves out there in ways that weren't necessarily healthy or safe and in a lot of ways were really damaging, but still allowed them to explore their queerness from a younger age. Yeah. yeah. And so I think for me, up until about the age of, what, like 17, 18, like most 90% of the hookups I'd ever had or like any sexual experience I'd ever had had been with, you know, straight boys yeah. or closeted boys. And at the time, that was really fun. It felt really naughty. Mm. It was like, ooh, like, I guess who sucked off the straight boy? Like, you know, and now it's like, you know, like, like, if, like, if, like, a straight boy comes up to me and they, like, try and make him, I'm like, baby, I don't have time for a closet case. I'm not your mother. I'm not your therapist. Mm. Go, like, go toss yourself off. Um, because I don't, like, I'm comfortable in myself now. And so yeah. the way in which I interact and have sex with people it's has really massively cool. changed because I've become more comfortable with who I am. And as a result of that, it's changed who I'm willing to, not even willing to, who I want to have sex with. Yeah. yeah. Because I no longer want the, like, 
boarding school eaten type who just happens to suck dick on the side but like yeah i no longer want the little posh white boy mm. i want someone who's a bit faggy and someone who doesn't <laughs> well not actually even a bit faggy but someone who is comfortable with playing around with these notions of gender yeah. and masculinity and femininity in a way that i am because i'll say that you know i'm more masculine than all of my straight friends but i'm still more femme than any of my girlfriends <laughs> and i think but and i want someone who can do the same who can yeah. play with gender and play with their that sense of identity in a way that's malleable and fun mm. yeah definitely well and i think like that how you were saying like at first you were just with the straight guys and now you're like okay no i actually like want to value myself and like who i choose who i sleep with and whatever like i think that speaks to like a lot of queer youth that yeah. just don't have the same opportunities and experiences that everyone else seems to be having at that yeah. age and like of course you want to like get involved in any way 100%. you can it's like a scarcity so it's like you take it where you can get it and that like also affects like so many people in terms of their self-esteem and like their relationship Massively. to sex because it's like since i was just sleeping with whoever i fucking could because i didn't really have that many opportunities like it gives this message 100%. of like oh like whoever wants me can take me yeah. kind of thing yeah and i think a big part of it is learning to value yourself and this is mm. a big problem i think we have within the queer community is the 15 year olds who are running on grinder mm. and being hit on or like running on twitter or whatever and just being hit on by men who are significantly older mm. who are very predatory and importantly who know they'll get away with it yeah. because they can get away with it because these kids are so vulnerable yeah because these kids are looking for that attention but the thing is things have changed so massively compared to but even just when we were 13 mm -hmm. like i really? bumped into um my friend's little sister was telling me like things at st paul's are so different now largely because of people like our age in our age and our age group who were quite comfortable being queer in relatively heteronormative schools ultimately have has made a huge difference because now there, there's literally like the gay group in every year. Oh, I love that. that. And you know what? They're the cool kids. Yeah. They're the ones running about running shit. In fact, they've all apparently got girlfriends. I'm like, that, that's a bit suspect for a gay <laughs> But okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm not here to buy shit. We love, we love some bisexuals. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, it's so much more comfortable now. The conversation around it is so much more common. Like, mm. It's so much more easier to come out now. There is so yeah. much less, I guess machismo machismo like to all of it to yeah, that kind, yeah to that kind of environment and it has become a lot more like like i think when we when we were young being the gay kid or being the, the bi girl being whatever being the queer person you you were someone who existed alongside everyone else but not necessarily integrated with everyone else yeah in the way that fight that we were the ones having to adapt our experience to fit that heteronormative narrative mm. of what it is to grow up in this world and nowadays it's it's, it's much more integrated. integrated in the way that the queer experience and the heterosexual experience fine it's still very very different but they're a lot more intertwining than they used to be it's not like we're going off on our separate lanes finding our own queer circles finding our own queer communities and then having to go back into straight world like, yeah. I feel like a lot of us still have to do and then kind of explain to our straight friends like how discourse the way we communicate the way we understand and view and exist like it's it's all a lot more meshed into one now mm. and so the experiences of a queer person i think are not going to be a lot more similar to that of a straight person but they're gonna be a lot more relatable and understanding just because they're a lot more because straight people are now a lot more exposed to it yeah yeah compared to mm. how we were even like five years ago yeah i remember when we were at school and we both had girlfriends at the same time 
I don't remember like anyone. I mean, maybe we just weren't aware of them, but I don't remember anyone in your years above us having girlfriends or boyfriends and like us being exposed to that. And it, it was very much like we, not that we were like trailblazers, <laughs> but like, but because we were like, very open about the fact that we were in relationships with girls and we would like kiss them at school it was like a massive deal like we were the ones that were like causing mm. a riot because we like kissed our girlfriend on the playground yeah, exactly. or something yeah stonewall who we paved the way no yeah. <laughs> i threw the first breakdown it was me it was me <laughs> Just breaking down barriers in our private school in West London. In our West London bars. But no, but like seriously, my friend's sister, who I was, who I mentioned earlier, um, she literally told me the other day, like people, she she put me on her Instagram. She was like, three St Paul's boys messaged me, been like, oh my god, you're friends with Kabir. He's the reason I find it so much easier. I I found it so much easier to come out. Which for me was like, oh, I was like, gay celebrity. I was like, I'm gamers, guys. I'm gamers. But like, but like, not again. Not like big up me, but it was like. I know that I was the first visibly queer person mm. that mm. I saw at St Paul's, including at the years above me. And fine, there were queer people, there were people out and gay, but I, I was faggy. You were very. I was, very, with it. I was it, There was no hiding. I was, was not. <laughs> yeah. And more importantly, there was no. I think I carried myself refusing to feel shameful about my sexuality mm, to the yeah. point where if you were homophobic to me, I would just bully you for two years. And like <laughs> that—that's the one advantage of having felt obliged to adhere to this bitchy kind of mm. thing it was like it was like you know a, a gay dictatorship in the sense that it was like you couldn't afford to be homophobic to me because yeah. i would be an asshole back and i wasn't mm-hmm. afraid to be a massive asshole back but like i'm not gonna be like and like as much as i'm like i regret who i was when i was 15 16 it's made it a lot easier for me to feel comfortable and confident about my sexuality now yeah yeah i think back to when i was like 13 before or like 12 before i'd fully come out and I would find it, like, the idea of even just saying the word out loud, like, I'm gay, was such a weird, and I knew I liked men, but I couldn't vocalise mm. it. Every time someone asked me, it kind of drove me that further bit back into the closet. And it's so weird comparing that time where I was just like, where I would literally tell people I'm either asexual or bisexual, because lying and saying that I was straight just sounded like bullshit coming mm. out of my mouth. <laughs> um, but it's like, going from that to now... I mean, literally calling myself a fag like about fifty times in the space of ten seconds. <laughs> like that—that's fucking growth, and that's growth that's only been necessitated by our, our queer elders that we have to look up to, mm-hmm. and it's only because of what the work that they do in just being visibly queer and being comfortable with who they are that has made it easier for us to do that, which in turn now makes it a lot easier for thirteen, fourteen-year-olds to be really comfortable in their schools being very openly queer. Yeah. yeah. So, do you think that, like, you know how you were saying when you kind of first came out and stuff, how you had a lot of experiences with straight boys and stuff, do you think it was because, like, you were one of the only, like, out kids? Or does that also happen, like, with just straight guys behind the scenes? Well, straight Straight guys guys behind the scenes. It's it's not like I had, like, a million one experience. It's not like, like, every other guy you see I've given head to. Yeah, no, no. It's like one in every three guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's... (laughs) It happens more than you'd think. And, like, a lot of the time, like, a lot of these boys, as far as I know, haven't done stuff with other guys or still identify as straight. And some of them are now out and by, like, years down the line or Mm. gay. And yeah, I think it's A, there was a lack of other gay guys, but B, like, you know, even if there were, like, what, like, five other gay guys that I knew of at the age of 13, 14, like, my dating pool of them, what, like, five? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, we're, like we, whereas, like, heteronormative people have the other 50% of the population, and it's like, 
like my dating pool has five is is like five like like the dating pool has pee in it like it's not like, <laughs> like I'm like I'm not entering this but um and also I think you don't know how to have a relationship you don't get to have that practice while like yeah. people were like going around kissing every other boy or girl they could see when they were thirteen you know yeah. like like capital VIPing that shit <laughs> like I like I didn't have any of that I, mm. I while well, all my friends were hooking up at house parties like that's not the experience I had mm. and like it's very different because I think there are times now. Where I'm running around and I'm like, I'm acting like I'm 15, like kissing every pretty boy that I see in the club. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but like, I get it at the same time. Like, yeah. I want to have like, I didn't get to have like a, like, like I have my celibacy and my like slutty phase all in the space of like a week. Like, <laughs> and it just changes because you don't get to explore it or grow up with it in the same way that other people get to. Yeah. It's, it's completely alienating, often very lonely experience. But I think some people do better with it than others and some people are lucky enough to find themselves in queer circles at young ages. And some people like me only really kind of discovered the queer community or found themselves as a part of it over the last, you know, two, three years, which is post uni or mm. pre or since uni, I guess. Yeah, it's weird because our friendship group was very queer, but we kind of weirdly gravitated towards each other <laughs> at like 15. <laughs> and then we were saying earlier that we like, uh, well at least when I talk about queerness definitely like on this podcast I always idolize it so much and mm. I'm like oh but queer relationships are amazing <laughs> but actually because you have such a narrow pool of like options yeah. it's not that amazing <laughs> because it's like they're they're your only option yeah. no offense to like the people that we had our our first <laughs> queer experiences with because they were like good in in its own it way yeah but... but it's still yeah you just feel so limited that like you'll take anything the dating pool has pee in it so not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. No, because I, I know what you mean about um, queer people kind of gravitating towards each other. Because a lot of my primary school friends, who I like, was friends with then. Obviously, like, was pre being like eleven. So the concept of sexuality wasn't really as prevalent in my mind. Yeah. So it actually, definitely was. I was a little poor back then. <laughs> but um, because like this thing, I've I've been like kind of like playing doctors with boys since I was like five. Mm. And like you know, when I play doctors, we go into the ER. Like you know, but um. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just like the GP. No, it ain't the GP girl. This is the operating room. But, um, which, which was, which was, I think, obviously, just five-year-old Kabir trying to figure out what it is, and if that's just kissing boys and stuff like that. But I think my parents like caught me doing it one time, and I think like like just playing playing doctors with boys, and they fully. And this was probably the most traumatic thing. Looking back, I'm like, no wonder this fucked up. Like just being queer for me for so long. They put, they, you know, they drove me to outside a police station. We're like, because they, because I, I was doing a lot more than just kissing. Wait, the how boys. old were you? I was like probably like I was I was younger than eight. Okay. Like being like it's illegal. You can't be like kissing boys' buttholes or whatever. Like being like like like, like and I was there like crying in tears. It's and, like, illegal. Don't send me to the police station. I was eight. Like I wasn't gonna know oh, any better. Oh no. And so I think naturally, and I think also growing up in a, in in like a par- parents of like immigrants who were like Indian. It was a lot more sex, was a lot more stigmatized. I think from like when I was younger, the idea that like two actors would kiss each other and they weren't in a relationship was like the most gross, like the most, I was like, that's disgusting. (laughs) I definitely grew up like an overly moralized, very kind of Victorian sense of sexuality. Yeah. Which like, even though now I'm a very sexually liberal person, I'm very open, you know, with it. I still like, there's still that stuff there that you have to untangle yourself Mm. from. And there is that kind of rigidity around sexual about around sex that took me a long time to overcome as well Hmm. i don't know how we got onto that but yeah yeah no i definitely relate to that i was literally telling honey the other day like 
I feel like I'm such a conventional, <laughs> liberal, open person because like so many, especially sex things and like, because I grew up very like Roman Catholic, also Im- yeah. immigrant parents, like, so it's just like so many things. It's like, I think it's completely fine, but like from me, myself and I, like I would never do it. And like things like, well, I don't know. I was going to, I don't know why sex before marriage came into my mind. I obviously <laughs> I'm not against sex yeah. before what? marriage, but like. I don't know, like, abortion or things like that. I'm just so, like, Fair, like very conventional fun. in my... Th- I don't know. Not in my thinking, because I really don't... Yeah. It's just in, like... It's how it affects you on a personal yeah, level. Yeah, like, can... hold-ups that you kind of still have. Yeah, and, like, exactly. Things that you really don't realise, because I'm so open about sex and, like, so open about really? certain things yeah. that, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, here we are. But on then again, podcast. like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you do catch yourself. Sorry. Do you think that that's just kind of, like... I feel like I always end up being the therapist. (laughs) Do you think that's just you like overcompensating for like, not overcompensating, but like trying to make up for like that, like those lack of things? Because I feel like I overshare because that's just how I was raised, but like you overshare and I feel like it was on a different level of you like, not like- Yeah, no, I get what you're saying, sorry. Yeah, like not making up for stuff, but like, you're just trying to like get it all out there yeah, to like yeah, yeah. Uh, like work like with, counteract yeah the... work with what you yeah. have <laughs> <laughs> yeah no for, no I, d- I do think that's definitely possible like my parents have always said like they've always been quite uncomfortable with my openness and always trying to push it like see how far I can push it and push them in a way because it's like yeah. I want to push their thinking and understanding and like how earlier we were saying like you know, parents that think that they're, like, more accepting of queerness and, like, you being gay than they think they are. Yeah, Yeah, like, that's kind of my parents as well. Like, kind of trying to push them on those things. So I do, I guess I do kind of, like, over-exaggerate it sometimes. But, yeah, Mm. it's the internal battle is quite interesting. Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes it has also, like, manifested in, like, to an extreme, for instance, like, my hypersexuality and, like, being really sexual and, like, that being a huge, like, part of my identity Mm. for, like, quite a while. And it was all, I feel like it was all kind of like trying to like... Yeah, no, I get you. No, Come I'm not this way, like proving, like yeah. kind of proving it mm. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So I came back to BPD actually, one one interesting thing that's really common with it is hypersexuality. Yeah, I, I meant, I wanted to mention yeah. it earlier because I have read that somewhere. And, I mean, I, I think all essentially it manifests itself in is that like, nowadays at least, I think back then it was like, you know, I would sleep with anyone, but mainly because I was trying to use sex as a form of self-harm. Mm. Now... It's a lot more like I've just got a high libido and I probably mm. need, not need, but I, <laughs> if I was in a relation, if I, if I, if I had someone consistent as opposed to me just sleeping around, yeah, I would like, it would probably be a very sexually active relationship and mm. I would need it to be because I, for me, physical intimacy is a very important thing and it's something yeah. that I do require, but people often swing from one end to the other as well. So like from having had extreme hypersexuality for a long time then people switch like mad sexual repulsion where like just the idea of sex turns mm. them off where there is this huge not necessarily sense of shame but it's it's like you know that kind of like ill feeling after a hookup that you just know you shouldn't have had yeah. or like kind of, or like or like you know when you wake up and like the kind of hangover anxiety of oh I was such a fucking mess like like mm. this it's like that but just about everything sexual in the long term I think for me oh wow that's like I definitely nearly went there a few years ago where oh, I was really? just like I didn't know about that sorry Karen. no because so of course it's just a I think I think with anal for me that was a big hang up for like a really really long time because it was like 
no one teaches you how to do A. Like, mm. No one teaches you how to do anything. And so I think for a while, I was kind of almost repulsed by it, swinging back from that hypersexuality, especially off like first year of uni where I've been sleeping around quite a bit. After the diagnosis, for a solid year to like eight months, I was definitely just completely like, I'm never doing anal again. Mm. And the idea, and I, I don't think it was as much to do with the diagnosis as it was to do with that kind of sexual repulsion. And now it's got to a point where it's like, I don't really care. And for me, my sex life, at least, and surprisingly more common than I thought with queer people, not everyone is constantly doing anal at all times 24-7. <laughs> like, and I think this is the one good thing about queer sex compared to straight sex, is that straight sex is very linear in a mm, way. It's yeah. kind of like, there is an end, there is a goal. I mean, y'all literally have There's bases. like a script, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, whereas, bases, I, I, like, whereas um, like, queer sex is a smorgasbord. Like, like it's, it's like a little, like, charcuterie board with, like, a little <laughs> bit of this, a little bit of that. And, like, fine, maybe I don't want, like, the saucisson today, but, like, you know? Um, yeah. I'm still down for some parma ham. Um, so it's, it's, it's like that. I think you have a lot more flexibility and options with what you can do. And I think, especially, like, heterosexual sex is so often defined by, you know, penis, vagina, bloop. Like, mm. whereas I think queer sex, for me at least, is defined by intimacy and intensity mm. and those are the two factors that i used to d- differentiate between what was sex and what was just me hooking up with someone. yeah and we could be doing the exact same things yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, for yeah. me it's about defining it through sex as an act that for me yeah is defined through emotion like not emotions but intensity and intimacy mm. so yeah i don't know how i got on to that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> it can, i feel like it's so intense as well and that's another thing of like idolizing queer relationships is that yeah it's amazing yeah you have the charcuterie board of like picking and choosing what you feel it's not just like one set script but because you have that freedom it opens up so much room for all this intensity that is like very yeah. overwhelming to deal with especially because you're not primed for those situations by the society that we live in mm. like the society exactly. that we live in is very heteronormative, very linear, and then suddenly you have all these options, and it's like, oh, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, what is happening? And I think as well, I think queer men have to deal with it in a very similar way that women in general have to deal with, in a way that straight men don't, which is the body standard, the standard that is put forward to you by the media, and fine, there is that kind of male body like type that is put forward by the media, but it doesn't really affect straight men in the same way that the woman beauty standard affects women. Mm. And the way that the queer beauty standard, which is typically, you know, like, not queer, but I would say the gay beauty standard, which is very, like, six foot four, ripped, muscled, is really shoved into your face by, mm. like, porn, all of that. Yeah. And I think, I think I guess, I guess with queer sex, it's a bit less of an issue because when you're getting to that point of having queer sex, you've already had to do a lot more of your own discourse and research. But I think people forget that, like, sex isn't meant to be the smooth thing. Like, cause, like sex yeah. is yeah. awkward. Sex is, the best parts of sex are those moments where you kind of just stop and giggle at each other because, like, mm. it's just, like, sex is smelly. Sex isn't pornographic thing and i think with queer sex there's a bit more kind of un- I, I don't really know if it is more like there's know. more room yeah there's more, there's room, more for room for error for, for, yeah that's yeah. that's what mm. yeah I, I don't know if there is i i, I wouldn't know i've never had straight sex <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah no i think there's a lot of expectations with straight sex and it's not pleasant to have to fulfill them for either person involved but with yeah with queer sex i mean i guess it's difficult because like my only gay relationship was with someone that i was dating so that was like obviously the expectations are kind of less yeah. at that point but like the only other person i've had like queer sex with 
it was just a lot less expectation a lot less like this is happening now this is happening now it was just Mm. like whatever happens now i'll take it or like not take it there's no expectations yeah yeah yeah. and in a way like a lot like less performative i'm just like thinking of like my experiences and i do feel like well, I, I don't know, maybe it is also just for me because I feel like if there's, like, a woman standing in front of me, it's like, I know we have this mu- mutual understanding of what's going on. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know that, like, I don't actually have to moan like that because yeah. you also, like, yeah. you know yeah. how it feels. So it's like, you know, and there's, yeah, and there is this less, like, I don't feel like I'm going to crush your ego if, like, mm. I don't come for you. Like, so like less expectation from both ends. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, for sure. That's interesting. I get that, though. That makes mm. sense. Yeah, I have we're have... teaching you about yeah, straight I, I, sex. I, 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 oh my god, are we going to learn about straight sex? Am I going to walk out of here a cisgender man? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't think there's a right answer for this, but why do you think that there's a lot more of a like hookup culture and casual sex culture and in like the for, yeah? Um, I think for a couple reasons. One, it's because it's a sexuality that's been oppressed, therefore when you drive that underground and when you have these communi- communities of people that have been driven underground and are willing to explore, it's not that they're necessarily more promiscuous, it's just that in relation to straight heteronormative society, mm-hmm. which has been conditioned by thousands of years of sexual oppression, if you look at Victorians, if you look at everything, mm-hmm. when you're breaking apart and forming a new society or a new community, you're not held to those same standards, you're not held to those same expectations, and therefore you can do a lot more, you can explore a lot more. Mm. And I think, but I think also as well, when you are being oppressed, who you love and you can't openly date, and you can't openly get married. Sex is the only form of physical connection you have. So I think for those reasons, sex and physical intimacy do play a bigger role in queer communities than they do necessarily in heterosexual communities, because those are the very things for which they have been oppressed. Mm. Or at least um, on a sexuality level, not on a gender level. Also then I think there is a greater level of hookup culture around it and i think that's for a variety of reasons i think grinder exists which is an app that is solely you know for sex i think also the conversations that we have but like for instance why do you think there's a like grinder and it that works for like gay men but why is there not like a grinder for straight people like how has that i mean i guess yeah. you kind of did already answer but like yeah i just think it's so i don't know sorry carry on. No, no no i get what you mean i just also, I just don't think a straight grinder would work. Like, like yeah. just just for the simple like, like already grinder is a very risky place to be. You're meeting, yeah. up some, you're meeting up with someone random from the internet. Realistically, the first time you meet them, like more often than not, I'll leave a grinder hookup and I'll be like, oh, by the way, what's your name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Like, it is a certain level of like. So you think it's also like a male privilege kind of thing in a way. I think it'd be really dangerous if it was a ma- if it was a ma- like if if there was a straight grinder. I think it'd be a lot more. Risky because you're already entering a very dangerous situation yeah. mm-hmm. when there is that kind of safety imbalance, yeah. or automatic power imbalance. Yeah. That you know you you are putting women. At, I think it's just it just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Like it would just. But also because one or two people get murdered on Grinder, majority of society is going to be like, all right, whatever. Two, you know, you 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 get you you murder two white women off a dating <sighs> app. That dating app's never coming back. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, the thing. So yeah, also, yeah, like yeah. society simply would care more. Yeah, no. They simply course. would care more if <laughs> yeah. a cis hit, heterosexual person were to be murdered on a dating mm. app compared to Grinder. Mm. I don't know. It's it's really interesting as to why sex is more prevalent. But I think also it's because the conversation. There is a lot more conversation mm. around it, and there is mm. a lot more. 
because you go speak to your queer friends about these things. You go yeah. speak. You don't have the kind of resources that heterosexual people have around them. Mm. But yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, there's a big variety of reasons as to why queer circles tend to be more. Because so many queer people are creatives, work in nightlife. We're naturally, we congregate in situations which are more likely to lead to sex. That's the thing. Because if you take mm-hmm. a straight club and you take a gay club, the amount of people who are probably getting laid that night are probably quite similar. But the idea is, is that where, where the majority of queer communities exist, it's in nightlife. It's in party culture. Mm, yeah. And therefore we're automatically placing ourselves. Like we're not going to like a boozy brunch with the mates and we're just jerking each other off. Like, like, <laughs> like, 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 like it, it's often like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we just tend to be in situations which are more conducive to probably getting laid at the end yeah. of the night but i think what you said about power imbalance is also really interesting mm. because i think that's just again a lot more conducive to sexual situations like it doesn't feel like like with your queer friends or just anyone that's yeah. queer there's a lot less of like explaining that you have to do and a lot less like meeting in the middle that you have to do it's just like you're kind of already on a similar plane yeah. of existence like no, what I we were you. saying earlier about <laughs> we were talking about having to disclose that you have herpes to people and i was saying disclosing to straight people is like a whole journey <laughs> no, to get exactly. there but to queer people it's just like okay that's already part of their language and conversations that they have with their friends mm. like on a day-to-day basis 100 percent. and i think like trying to explain to my straight friends that i've had peace they're like oh my god what and then like and then like explain to my gay friends they're like bitch you're not special all of us have like, <laughs> yeah. fuck over yourself and i'm like thank you guys <laughs> but no, no, no it, it is really true and we were talking about this it's that I think because a we're all relative, relatively well educated, but b because you guys literally run a sex podcast, mm. the kind of level of discourse and the level of information we're surrounded by, that that we have access to, is so much greater than what the average cis straight person, even if they grew up with the same amount of privilege or in the same world as we did, have. And so when I speak to my straight friend, it's kind of weird a how uncomfortable they are talking about sex, mm. but b the way in which they're even able to communicate it is so mm. fundamentally different. They just don't have the same capacity to talk yeah. about it. And because they haven't been surrounded by it, our general base level of discourse is so different. And I'm sorry, but it is a lot higher than your average straight person's just because it's what we've had to do in order yeah. to survive and to understand ourselves. Yeah. When society understands you for you, you don't have to do as much self-introspection or introspection with other people as you would as a queer person. And that's why we are so much more generally comfortable talking about our bodies, talking about sex, but also understanding the discourse between gender and sexuality and stuff like that, because those are the rights that we're fighting for and continue to have to explain to other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's all laid out for you and it's pretty fucking simple, it actually makes it more restrictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To have to like constantly explain something to someone else, you have to have the understanding in (laughs) like language to be able to do that in the first place yeah and like all in the question of how straight people would be like oh but like what do you mean how do you have sex and it's (laughs) like like just that question kind of proves it all it's like you don't even have like the your notion and conception of sex is yeah exactly the understanding beyond that to like fathom what like what any other kind of sex could be whereas like as you were saying this is the kind of stuff that you just know automatically, exactly. essentially, yeah. by being queer. And I'm sorry, but how fucking boring. <laughs> that, like, serious. Like, I kind of imagine, like, like, fine, now I'm just being, like, heterophobic, which isn't a thing. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. You've seen, like, Will and Charlotte from The Inbetweeners, where he's just like... 
You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, do you know the scene I'm talking about? I haven't watched that. No, movie. yeah, yeah. Really? To be fair, that's not what that's straight kind, sex I know it's not, like. but in my head, like, that is just <laughs> all straight sex is. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of is, though. I mean... It's definitely not, but it mean, definitely, it's definitely is. the I'm going to have to defend over No, over. but even like... <laughs> that is a very straight bashing to me. <laughs> no, because it is like the exception to have straight sex that isn't like that. Like, the amount of times I've had straight sex and I've just been like, what was that? But then the like couple of times when it's been some, like even an inch outside of like the expectations or the prescribed script of like how it should be. I don't know what I'm saying yeah. in my hands. But like, that is like something to talk about. That's like, oh wow, this this man like knew what he was doing. Yeah. And I think also in like straight world, there seems to be a lot more kink shaming. And I maybe it's mm. because, I mean, the only real example I have of this, and maybe it's just because we were 16, but I know a friend of mine was seeing a girl and they, they were into very light BDSM kind of play. And I mean like, very baby stage mm. bondage like like you have a like you have a couple handcuffs and like a collar and a leash maybe kind of thing and like the light span like occasional light spank and I remember all of us being like oh I'm like, like oh my god what the fuck like kind of really overdoing it like, all my straight friends being like oh my god you're so crazy like you own like a leash and like a collar like that's so fucking wild and, I'm just, like, and they would really kink shame him and I'm just like looking back like what <laughs> like, like why and like i think because there is so much more rigidity and mm. still this kind of victorian notion of sex that it is something to kind of simultaneously being straight be really embarrassed about but also really boast about yeah which is such a really it's such a weird dichotomy to have but i think a lot of it is obviously gendered and it's largely like misogyny massively factors into it but the idea that like sex is something that guys are so happy to talk about or girls even, but are still so ashamed of at the same time, mm. is the biggest inherent contradiction ever. Yeah. And whereas I think, like, for us, it's like, guys, it's just sex. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like, like you haven't gone to space. Like, like, like it's just sex, babes. Calm down. It makes it a little easier just to talk about it. Yeah, mm. and honestly, I share, I mean, obviously, I share every single detail of my sex <laughs> life because we have a podcast. But, like, with you, like, on our group chat, which is, like, three queer people and two straight people <laughs> i feel like we are i mean not to like shame our straight friends but i was literally thinking the other day when we were talking about who has the most sex i was like i know nothing about your your sex lives to this two people like two straight people two. whereas like you and will i know every single detail of your sex lives yeah, no, that's true. And you I know everything that's that. going on with my vagina at all times. <laughs> I feel so good. That's amazing. <laughs> all my streams that could be overshare because I'll be like, uh, like he threw me back and I basically got concussed or something. <laughs> and I'll be like, Kabir, that's disgusting. And I'm like, I get it. Like, it is TMI for like, a lot of people. But it's but so it's fun. No, it's fucking not. It's fucking entertaining, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is good content, yeah. okay? And all my stream friends like, oh my God, no, I don't want to hear about your sex life. But then I can hear them kind of be like, oh my God, don't tell me, but also tell me about it. But also, I know. <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's yeah. just like, I, and it's so weird because like having them like talk about their sex life. It's just, yeah, so I've been seeing the, like, like it's just bland <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not like vanilla shaming either. Like, it's just, yeah, no, it's just, just get into the juice. Get, yeah. like, I don't like, care I, I about the, the details. Yeah, exactly. I want the juicy, dirty <laughs> details. The details. What are all these hang-ups about talking about it? I, I get, I get all the hang-ups about talking about yeah. it. It's only from being forced to have to explore it at the mm. levels that we've mm. had to that we are now this comfortable. Yeah. I loved what you said earlier about, like, through being oppressed, essentially, like, you just become more free about it because you just, like, get to yeah. go away from the 
main society mm. and the main way of thinking and like think a little bit outside the box there's a lot of freedom when you're not holding yourself to a standard or yeah mm-hmm. except the only problem is it's really difficult because the entire way we have these conversations are in relation to the societal norms so yeah it's like, even still i'll find myself being like i'm uncomfortable to wear this or that because it's maybe a bit too feminine or mm. it's, i don't have the right body type for it because i've what's internalized what cis heteronormative society or even homosexual society has indoctrinated into yeah. me mm-hmm. and it's like even when you're talking about like the promiscuous question our level of comparison is only cis heteronormative yeah. is the mm. cis heteronormative standard and so it's really difficult trying to find a place within the system because we know the system is fundamentally broken and like i'm a big like we need to like even on a systemic level we need to just tear apart everything and start again yeah and I think we need to do the same with how we talk about sex and gender and sexuality. I think it's it, it, it's impossible just because of the way society is set up at this moment in time to talk about it without it being in relation to that cis heteronormative standard. But you know what I mean? Yeah, a little mm. bit of Foucault in there. Oh my God. <laughs> We're literally just like quoting. I just, graduate, of I, just graduate, I just graduated with a philosophy degree. I don't ever think about that shit ever again. <laughs> that is literally all that we're talking about. Yeah. Like right now, fully. Word for word. But like, it is like, that is literally what he says. Yeah. Is like, there isn't really a way that we can talk about sex right now because every way that we talk about sex is going to be related to like. To the, the norm yeah, of sex exactly. and that, that it can never be revolutionary even if we think that we're being revolutionary and like this is i've really grappled with this with our podcast of like are we like what the fuck are we doing are we even doing anything <laughs> of like can we talk about it in any way that is like yeah pushing the boundaries of you get what i'm saying of normativity yeah. it's it's really tricky but like, also like but it's just human beings at the end of the day. Like, there's only so revolution. Like, unless, unless, you're, so like, unless I'm do. about to grow like a third knob or a second or third. Like, a second, <laughs> a second, a second <laughs> or a third. I don't know where the second one came from. But unless I'm about to grow like a second knob and like, you know, like a clit on my knee. Like, like no, no, nothing I can do is going to be that revolutionary. Yeah. Like, there's only so much we can yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like the more we're exposed to it, the more it can start to push the boundaries. But for us to even to get to that point, we have to like, just talk about it no matter what it is exactly mm. but <laughs> yeah, i don't know how the fuck we got it so <laughs> how we got it. i feel like so, listening back on this you're just gonna be like tangent off tangent <laughs> uh, maybe we should like bring it back to the original topic of like so i'm really mentally ill <laughs> <laughs> just like a little i don't know maybe a little summary and reflection of like i don't know i'm kind of interested of you were to get into a relationship now, now yeah how would what, it be different? yeah what would you want it to look like like considering everything we've talked about bpd and yeah. queerness I, I think i would want it like i said to be with someone who has an understanding of their own gender and a willingness to play with it whether mm. they on their day-to-day is a super masculine muscly guy whether it's like a super femme twinky kind of guy or them or whatever in either situation I would want them to be someone who's just very comfortable with toying with those ideas of gender. I'm not entirely sure whether I'd want it to be monogamous or not, but I think for me, what would be really important is that it would be so. It would have to be with someone who's like my like one of my best friends first. Like it would have to be with someone who I have that kind of rapport with and that I have that kind of connection with before it becomes romantic, mm. because at least then it prevents me from becoming obsessive. It mm. prevents me from going crazy. I need to know and understand that person mm. in the same way that I need them to know and understand me. And they, so I, I like it, it needs to be something that emotionally is supportive because mm, yeah. I'm a very emotional person. So I need 
I'm not looking for someone to be my mum and my dad. Like, I'm not looking for someone to sit my I can very much look after myself. Mm. But I want someone who can be, who I, who I can openly be like, hey, I just need a little bit of reassurance right now. I want, you know, I mean, I think I want what everyone wants, which is just clear, open lines of communication, trust, and a lot, and a, and a lot of, like, reciprocal love. Yeah. I think ultimately mm. beyond that, oh, and someone who can, like, like who's like gonna like sucking dick and cooking food <laughs> like but like other than that you know i think that's it and i think yeah. the thing is for me now when i look at relationships the only, the real question that i'm asking and i'm not currently dating or even actively trying what well, we're gonna set up my dating profile yeah. so in about 10 minutes i will be trying to actively date but um i think for me now what i'm really interested in figuring out though is that with my relationships is whether i want monogamy or whether i would want something open mm. and that's kind of the real that's what i'm really questioning because i think for so long i was very much like i just want monogamy i just want like a solid relationship and i've not even had that like i've not even had like a proper like long-term date i kind of i sleep around i don't really date around mm. and I, I kind of want to start dating because it seems a lot more fun than just sleeping around but um <laughs> like it sounds like also a lot more headache and like yeah <laughs> um see because at least like with like sex it's a lot less like I, I get a lot less freaked out about it and yeah. da- dating's a scary part for me sex isn't really oh, a scary yes. part for me mm. yeah so I think, for me, I just want somebody's un- understanding. But yeah, I think exploring whether I want monogamy or whether I want something open is something I'm still yet to do. Yeah. And it's still something that I'm not really sure on because I really enjoy... I enjoy, like, I enjoy the company of people. I enjoy, you know, flirting with people, games, like, like kiss the cute boy at the club, go home, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. That's all fun and games. But at the same time, I think how, if I had consistency, both in my sex life both and in my emotional life, I realistically probably wouldn't want an open relationship in the way that I currently think that I do. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, it's it's still it's still a learning curve, and yeah. it's still and it's a massive learning curve. But um, yeah, that's, that's exciting it. though. Yeah, something yeah. to you know look, to forward, look forward to. to. Exactly. There are so many things to explore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, great. I think we should wrap up yeah, because we we've talked about, about a we lot. About everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everything. Um, but thank you so much for yeah, sharing for so much me. of your this thoughts. This was so much fun. It was so fun. I feel like we're going to have to record a part two at some time. <laughs> yeah, we going. have so much to say. <laughs> we'll do like notes on queerness, <laughs> notes on monogamy. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> Just like as as like you figure so, out. little tangent. <laughs> come every six months, guys. I've had a new epiphany about my sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can do bonus episodes called like Tangents with <laughs> please that'd be so much fun anyway, thank you guys so much for having me on this has been so much fun yeah thank you so much for joining us and as always you guys know where to find us on instagram at sextras podcast facebook sextras podcast our website www that was too many w's sextraspodcast.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll see you next week bye, bye. You've been listening to Sextras, presented by Honey Jane Wyatt and Maria Jose Hayodatiyi, produced by Mabel Productions. Sex.